Today's meeting is about Zen of now and exploring some of the Zen readings, a little bit of tradition, a little bit of history, and Ultimately, it is not about tradition or history. It is about the awakening of the present moment. Awakening of your consciousness, awakening of your true self. And in that moment, there is a clarity a clarity of awareness, a clarity of consciousness, and this clarity is called Zen. And of course, this clarity is now and it is here. So thus, Zen can only be now, can only be here, can only be this. And the mind has many 10,000 aspects and they're all interwound, intermingled, interlocked, interconnected, very complicated. However, there's a great simplicity in awareness itself. It is so simple that it pierces the mind. It pierces true conditioning, the veils. And it starts with simple noticing. It starts with simple noticing in every single moment what is happening now. With complete honesty, with complete transparency, with complete nakedness, this simple noticing, moment by moment by moment, moment, what is happening now. Today I would like to read a, a little bit about the beginnings of Zen. The early encounters, we may say, The teachings of Zen Buddhism can be summarized in, in a few words as a special transmission outside of scriptures. No reliance upon words or letters. Direct pointing to the mind. seeing into one's own nature and the realization of Buddhahood awakening. A special transmission outside the scriptures means that it's, it's always fresh. 
if you're reading something, it was written some time ago, obviously. There is a causality to it, how this book ended up in your hands. And only in that moment, if something clicks, that is a realization. No reliance upon words and letters is to not stick particular ideas in your head. It's to not stick anything particular in your head. And if there is something sticky particularly in your head, then obviously you have to get it unstuck. Direct pointing to the mind. Yes, it is directly saying that this is the mind. This is the limitation. To directly acknowledge that that's the mind, that's the limitation, that's the fixture, that's a position, that's a condition. And then seeing into one's own true nature, realization of awakening. It's a beautiful summary. And don't fix on it. Just allow it to be heard, hearing, and letting it go. Sometimes this path, this the, the spiritual path, the path of awakening can be said, there is a saying in Zen. It's like a mosquito trying to bite an iron bull. It's when the mind tries to fix onto the truth. It's like a mosquito trying to bite on the iron bull. It, it just doesn't happen. It just doesn't stick. When the Indian monk, and as we know, Zen comes really from India, from Buddha, from awakening of Buddha. And Zen is a branch. So it comes from India and it traveled to China and then Vietnam and reached Japan and, and other Asian countries. But it, the origins are of awakening of Buddha. So when the Indian monk, Bodhidharma, the first ancestor of Zen Buddhism, brought his realization of the Buddha's teachings to China in the sixth century CE, there followed the legendary encounter with Chinese Emperor Wu. So having heard that a monk of great wisdom had arrived in his country, Emperor Wu, who was a devout Buddhist, commanded his audience of this monk. And he tells the monk, I have built many monasteries and erected temples to honor the Dharma. The emperor greeted his guest. 
Is there not great merit in this? The emperor says. And the ragged monk replies, no merit whatsoever. Is that so? Replies the emperor who was no doubt a bit confused and flustered at having received such a bold response from a monk. So what then is the meaning of the, of the holy truth? And the monk replies, vast emptiness, nothing holy. Well, then who are you? demanded the emperor. Who stands before me here? And the monk replies, I do not know. And he walked away and spent the, the next nine years in a cave, meditating, facing a wall. And thus began the school of Buddhism known as Zen, or Chan as known in China. And the tradition of these Zen stories, which are mind-to-mind -mind encounters of the great matter of the Dharma. So these encounters have been passing away for the last 1,500 years, and many stories have been accumulated and known of encounters with these awakened beings and direct meetings in which the truth is revealed. So therefore in this little story, which is the introductory story, it is a great example that no matter how big the deeds are, even if the emperor has build many monasteries and temples and so forth to feel the pride and so forth and the monk simply replies there is no merit to this because it is not about pride and it's not about what one thinks but it is about awakening of the truth and he called it the vast emptiness He said, there's nothing holy. So sometimes we think that something is holy or something is divine. You know, we, we might have a little um, sculpture of, of Buddha or, 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 you know, in Christianity, they have he, Jesus and so forth, or there is a temple and this and that. And that represents a symbol. However, even a simple rock on a road is as holy as another stone and carved in, into someone's face. In the universe, everything is holy in the absolute sense. It is all awakened truth. 
in a relative sense, when we use the mind, then yes, we distinguish what is special, what is less special and less special and so forth. And of course, if one clings to the idea of specialness, that it is, then it is no longer actually special. Then it is the idea of the specialness. So thus in Zen and in awakening, it is always about the truth in the now. And many times people come to me and, 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 and many times people meet me and they assume that I'm the same like a month ago. And that is not true. They say, oh, last month you said like this. And the river is no longer the same. Because in reality, there is no fixed position. You cannot take a word and keep it for the truth for a month. That word was, was true in that moment in that circumstance, in that unique situation. And this is the challenge that we have, that people read books and, and, and watch the videos and so forth. And the truth is that moment of recognition of the truth. And when that moment passes, what remains is memory. So therefore, people usually meet me in memory. They rarely meet me in the now. And in the now, it's always new. It's different, obviously. And you know what I'm talking about because when you go and visit your parents, <laughs> you are their child. You're always the same. You're always the child to the mother. Your father will always make a little comment about you in this way or that way. And the mother will tell you, you're always so slim, you should eat more. And how are you like this and like that? So they're always meeting you in a particular way. And all of you have this, a little bit of resistance because you feel that's not who I am. So that is the moment of recognition of truth. Because you're not only a child. You're a grown-up now. You're adult now. You're independent now. So you're not only the child. So therefore, a recognition is always fresh. It's always present. It's always now. And there's nothing wrong to be a child of a mother, but a mother should realize that you are an adult too, and you are a being, or even you are awakened being. And I remember some years ago, five or seven years ago, my mother was, I was asking my mother, so how are you and, 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 and how, how do you feel about me? And my, and my mother says, 
well, you know, me and, 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 and your father, we feel a bit, a bit confused because we don't know how to speak to you. <laughs> and, and I replied, don't worry, I'm still your child. So therefore, a meeting should always be present. And in my case, it was reversed because I wanted to feel them comfortable and I wanted to say, I'm still your child and I still love you and it's, it's all as it was. So they already can recognize that there's something very, very different. But in most cases, you know, you, the parents would see you in the old way. And your old friends would see you in the old way. You know, your, your schoolmates and, and college uh, friends would always see you in that particular way. What is a realization? These are the Dharma words from one of the Zen teachers called Senzaki. I have been asked to explain what realization is, but if it could be explained, it would be not realization. While you're kneading the dough of your thoughts, you cannot enjoy the bread of realization. Walking through the forest of thoughts, just keep on walking until you find yourself cornered in a place that admits neither of advance nor retreat. When the mind admits neither advance nor retreat. Here, your knowledge will be of no necessity, no avail. Even your religion will be unable to rescue you when the mind is cornered. If you are really eager to enter realization, just go straight ahead, holding tenaciously to the question, what is realization? March on bravery. Use your own sword. Carve out a way for yourself. Many people are following the pathways of others. You need to carve your way for yourself. There will come a time when all of a sudden you will lose hold of your sword and at that moment, behold, you will have gained your true self. There's a wonderful description of what realization is. You have a double-edged sword. It's called your awareness. And you have to cut through the forest. You have to keep cutting through it until the path is clearer and clearer. And as you're cutting your path through this forest, you will look at this double-edged sword and you will realize 
that awareness itself is realization. It is always present, it is always here, and it always cuts on both ends of duality. There is another beautiful little story called Carve Me a Buddha. So before a person called Soke came to America, when he was just beginning to study his Zen, his teacher arranged a meeting for him with Soyan Shaku, the master having heard he was a woodcarver asked, how long have, been, have you been studying art? Six years, the woodcarver replies. The monk says, carve, so can you carve me a Buddha please? The woodcarver returned, uh, so he was working on this project, carving a Buddha. And then when the monk returned a couple of weeks later, the woodcarver gave him a statue, a beautiful statue of Buddha. And the monk says, what's this? And he threw it out of the window into a pond. <laughs> it seemed very unkind to the woodcarver and he asked for explanation. Can you please explain why you did so? Because I've been working on this wood carving for a long time. It's, it's, it's a very special one and beautiful one. And the, and the monk replied, I ask you to carve a Buddha in yourself. So that is a beautiful, a beautiful analogy, a beautiful story of, of the awakened way, we can say, of the awakened way. Many times people come to me and then they, they say, um, well, there's no way around with you. And I say, of course there isn't. And, and, and sometimes they say, well, I'm one of your best students, but it's, 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 it's never really perfect. You know, there's always something more. And yes, I replied that it is about non-camping. It is not about how perfect you have, you have learned what I said, how perfectly you have practiced what I told you. It is always about this moment. It is always about this moment. I'm not asking anyone to become the best students, to become the most eager followers. That is not my purpose. My purpose is to help you awaken. And therefore, sometimes it's not easy. Sometimes it's tough. And that is part of awakening process. 
There's toughness when it's needed. There's love when it's needed. But it's always for the best of your awakening. It is always for the best of your awakening. So there's a story of, of the early students of Zen in, in the West, in America. So Zen really came first to, to America in 1950s and uh, it was a difficult road. It was a difficult road in 1950s because it was right after the Second World War. And, and first the Buddhism and Zen arrived to, to USA and then it, it went into, came into Europe. So in 1950s, um, there is a quite a famous American Zen teacher called Philip Kaplow, if, if, if I'm reading his surname correctly. So he has a little, a little, uh, a little story of how he started. So he starts like this: What makes a man in his middle years? give up a secure job, comfortable income, family and friends for the austere and rigor of Zen monastery and the uncertain life of a homeless one. Because in the, in the old days, you know, Zen was a, a mon monastic practice. So you would have to give up um, your lay life, you know, your job, your family and everything else and, and come and live in a monastery if you want to be a committed, um, a committed student. And he, he further writes, it was painful tensions, exhausting restlessness, painfully felt inner bondage or the need to understand the sufferings and that, that he in his own words referred to the damn nothing feeling that nothing would satisfy him and the and his mind felt like a huge bondage so so he couldn't basically live a, a normal life and, and he had to find a way out and 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 Zen was his choice. So he said, I gave up my work in 1950s, disposed of my belongings and set a jail for Japan because there was no Zen in the West. So where do you go to Japan? Determined not to be, not to return until I became enlightened. Well, that is called determination. Yes, that is called determination. For the next 13 years, Philip Kaplau struggled with physical pain, language barriers, fatigue of his own mind. And in that day in Japan, English, you know, they wouldn't speak English. So you go and meet the Zen, Zen teacher and, and, and what? He's speaking in Japanese. So you have to figure your own way to learn the language, to start to understand. And of course, 
it's it's so much easier when it is spoken in native language in English. Um, so to go off to Japan and and to uh, start learning a new language, that is very very difficult. So that was the one of the first renowned students who went to Japan to 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 start acquainting with Zen. The experience he, he wrote left him feeling free as a fish swimming in an ocean of cool, clear water after being stuck in a tank of glue. That is wonderful. And then he says, what was his first lesson of Zen? After traveling around Japan for some time, looking without success for a Zen teacher who might be willing to work with the Western students. Because, you know, they would say, well, Westerner, you know, they had certain ideas about Westerners. So it took him uh, quite a while to find a teacher who was willing to accept him as a, as a Western student. So he and his traveling companion, Professor Bernard Phillips received a letter from, uh, from one of the monasteries saying they could stay there for a short time. Excited at the prospect of finally meeting a teacher with whom they could communicate in English, the two Americans spent the six and a half hour train ride, um, yeah, go, going towards the monastery. On their arrival that evening, um, the Zen monk greeted them and asked if they were tired from their long trip and, and they needed to rest. And they said, yes, we're a little bit tired, but, we've been prepared, but we have prepared a number of questions on the subject of Zen that we... And he said, stop, stop, stop. After you do Zazen, which is a, a sitting Zen practice, you can ask whatever you want, he says. The monk replies, first do the sitting practice, then I will answer your questions. Meanwhile, I have something, uh, some business to attend to, the monk says, so he, he, went, he went off. So ignoring the protests of the Americans who have never been instructed of how to meditate, they had no clue how to meditate, and they don't, didn't even know how to sit correctly. They're cross-legged. The, the monk said to them, do it any way you want. Just sit on the floor and remain silent. The first instruction. And with that, he left off. So the Americans were sitting wordlessly for two miserable hours in the dark hall. Concentration was impossible because their thoughts were chasing it, each other like a pack of monkeys. <laughs> Excruciating pain in legs, back and neck. At least the, the monk has, has prepared them a, a simple meal afterwards, some rice. And, and then he said, well, now, what would you like to know about Zen? <laughs> the, the American replied, not a thing, because they were exhausted and could scarcely remember any questions that they ever had. They were just too exhausted, too tired after six hours train, sitting for two hours in a, 
in a, on a, in a cross-legged way with all the pains. So the monk says, okay, well, you'd better go to sleep because we get up at 3.30 in the morning and pleasant dreams. So the, the American replied, uh, he thought to himself, that was the worst sitting I ever had in my life. Uh, looking back on the experience of, of, of the, the first meeting in, uh, with the Zen teacher, one look at me and he had me pegged, meaning that that was my first lesson in Zen. So essentially, it, you know, the real thing here is not to torture them, you know, it's not to, not to um, make them feel uncomfortable, but the real thing is, is, the real lesson behind this is to quiet the mind. You know, because they arrived with a million questions about Zen and they were so excited. And finally, we met a teacher, somebody who can teach us. And, and he said, wait a moment, you know, you need to exhaust your mind first and then we can talk. So Zen is not easy. And there are many, many encounters and stories of, of, of various various difficulties and challenges that one undergoes. However, um, there's one little story that I would like to share and then we will go to the practical side. Uh, yes, that's the one. So this story is called The Two Pots. And uh, this story relates to something a bit more beautiful and and, and we can say a way of Zen, which is kind of when the mind um, doesn't understand what's happening. So every day an old woman walked a mile to the river to get some water. She carried a stick across her shoulders with a ceramic pot tied on each end. So she had a stick on the shoulders, two pots tied up, walking a mile every day. One of the pots had a small crack and leaked the water each time a woman walked home. The cracked pot felt very bad about this. It's, it's, a, it's a little like, a, we can say, a, 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 an easier story. So this little cracked pot saw that the other pot did not have a crack and didn't leak the water that, the way he did. The old woman was kind person and, and uh, the cracked pot felt sorry that, that when she comes back all the time, you know, one of them is half empty. One day, this, this pot spoke to the woman about this. So he says, kind woman, for so many years you have carried me on your shoulders to get water, yet I have not been able to serve you well. I sincerely regret that I have a crack and leak so much water. Please forgive me. And the old woman smiled at the cracked pot and answered, those many years I have benefited from your small flaw, my dear pot. Didn't you notice that on one side of the road, many more flowers grown? This is because you watered them every single time we walked home together. 
I always had fresh flowers on my kitchen table and even sold some at the market. Don't you see? It's precisely your flaw that is your greatest gift to me. So this is a, this is a beautiful, just a little beautiful story. So we always need to come out of the mind. And if something is happening in a particular way that your mind cannot understand, there is a deeper reason behind. There is a bigger picture always. So bit by bit, as, as you awaken, you start to notice, notice these hidden reasons. You start to read and understand between the lines. You start to see your life circumstances as lessons, we may say. You start to see your pains and worries, that there is a lesson behind them, that there is something to look deeper, that there is something to uncover. And uh, even if your mind uh, cannot understand, it, it, it doesn't mean that something is wrong in this way or that way. Maybe there is a precise reason why one is like this. And uh, there is a, a big uh, variety of people with, uh, you know, some people are uh, more intellectual, other people are more feeling based. And everybody has unique gifts and abilities and skills. And, and essentially, if you're tall or short or uh, you know, white or black or male or female or this way or that way, and, and um, whatever way you are, whatever uniqueness you have, it is exactly as it's supposed to be. And it, it is exactly you who you are. And... Uh, and if you simply stop, you know, uh, looking for what's wrong, there's nothing wrong. So that's, that's, that's a little message as well on the side. So essentially, in the, it is a recognition of the immediacy and freshness of the now. The immediacy and freshness of the now. And this immediacy is inviting you, the, the Zen of now, the immediacy of now, is inviting you to step out of the river. And many of you will notice that there is a certain flow. That flow is energy. That flow is mind. That flow is understanding. That flow is called life. Or I call it the river of life. And Awakening is like stepping out of the river. It's like saying, oh my God, I'm wet. I should come on the shore. <laughs> you suddenly awaken. You realize that you're wet. Maybe you've been swimming along the river and sometimes you will be swimming opposite direction 
opposite the river, struggling. That's called struggling. Life wants you to go there, but you're struggling upstream. But whether you're struggling or you're just flowing along, you need to step out of the river. And that is the immediate now. And if your mind is looking, what is immediate? <laughs> what is immediate, immediate now? Oh, you know, this room, this, you know, this and this. Uh, no, 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 don't, don't look for objects. Don't look for what is around you, you know, what's your environment, what's your experience. It's not, it's not searching. The immediacy would be that your mind would be searching. What is immediate? No searching. The immediacy of now is recognizing. Even the mind is searching. Stop that too. Or for some people who say, oh, I, I am following this. That's called understanding. Stop understanding. And, and some people who say, I'm, I'm not getting it. Yes, yeah, stop confusion. <laughs> exactly stop that in which you are engaged with. And that is the immediacy of now. And there is aliveness in this immediacy. There's a big aliveness. It is so alive that it is so hard to sustain because I'd rather drop back in the river and flow along. That's what the mind says. It's a bit easier to flow as the river. It's a bit easier to, yeah, let me just chill out and rest and you know, see where life takes me, see where my mind takes me today or tomorrow and so forth. It's gonna take you in circles and circles and circles and circles, like little whirlpools in the river, you know, and some currents meet, there are these whirlpools, a little rock, there's a whirlpool. So you're gonna be hitting these rocks and, and, and swirling around. So therefore my invitation is to come to the immediacy and freshness of now. 